On April 6th, hours before the long weekend and spring break for many, Memorial University dropped a bombshell. The Mun Gazette published an announcement from the Board of Regents Chair Glenn Barnes that President Vianne Timmons was let go without cause. The departure came after an Indigenous-led roundtable was convened to lead discussions on Timmons' claims of indigeneity and their implications for the university community. Shortly after that, or around the same time, Munn published another statement in the Gazette, saying the roundtable would continue its work. Memorial remains committed to fostering Indigenous-led conversation and dialogue in our community, it said. This is an opportunity for learning and reflection and the guidance provided by the Indigenous Roundtable regarding Indigenous identity will be critical to the continued process of Indigenization at Memorial. If the other cases like Timmins are any indication, we may not hear from the former president for a while. She's entitled to upward of $650,000 in severance. So in all likelihood, she'll be fine. But even with the president gone, the questions are still piling up and spotlights are shining brightly on two big issues. Race shifting, as it's become known, the growing phenomenon of settlers seeking out indigenous ancestry to claim an indigenous identity today, and the crisis in governance at Newfoundland and Labrador's only university. In the first half of today's show, a conversation with a prominent expert on race shifting and Indigenous identity fraud in Canadian universities. In the second half, we speak with two faculty leaders from MUN about the years-long push for a more open and transparent hiring process for senior administrators. Then we go back to 2019 and uncover an alarming fact about how Vianne Timmons was hired. I'm Justin Brake. This is Barry Grounds. Last year, the University of Saskatchewan commissioned a study of Indigenous identity fraud in academia. They hired Métis lawyer Jean Taye, great-grandniece of Louis Riel and a prominent voice for Indigenous people's rights. In October, she submitted an 86-page report that surveys how race-shifting is impacting Indigenous peoples and post-secondary institutions in Canada. Taye also makes a series of recommendations to begin addressing the issue. We spoke on March 31st, almost a week before Timmins' departure. And while it's no longer the case that Memorial is investigating a sitting president, many still want answers as to why Timmins wasn't properly vetted. And they want assurance that this won't happen again. For those reasons alone, my conversation with Taye is as relevant now as it was before Timmins was out. It's been lightly edited for brevity. Here we go. March 31st. Your report was done for the University of Saskatchewan, but it also examines the broader issue of race shifting in academia. 
but you don't use the term race shifting. You prefer the term indigenous identity fraud, which you define as the act of relying on deception to achieve a material advantage. This includes people who you say intentionally and falsely identify as indigenous to obtain a faculty or staff position, funding, or a student placement. You go on to say that there are two kinds of indigenous identity fraudsters, fabricators who fabricate an indigenous identity out of thin air and embellishers who embellish their connection to indigeneity either by exaggeration or misstatement when they don an indigenous identity based on elusive hearsay or rumors or minuscule evidence. And you further say that the advantage they gain is stolen. It causes harm and breaches indigenous people's trust. These fabricators and embellishers are collectively called fraudsters. Jean, does the, does Vian Timmons meet your definition of a fraudster? By saying that she previously was a member of a, and I put it in scare quotes, First Nation, that's identification as Indigenous. There's no other way around it. That's what it was. Now, she also says that she has Indigenous heritage, but she doesn't identify as Indigenous. What she's saying is nowadays, like right now, she's not identifying as Indigenous, but she has in the past. And the other part of this is that what's the point in talking about Indigenous heritage if you're not intending people to assume that that means that you're Indigenous? So it's dog whistle politics to my mind. The whole intention of saying that is because most people in Canada think that Indigenous people are a race and that it, all it is is a blood connection to it, no matter how minuscule, and that makes you Indigenous. So by people standing up, and she's by no means alone in doing this, standing up and saying, I have Indigenous heritage, but I'm not claiming to be Indigenous, I think it's a distinction without a difference. There's no reason to draw attention to this tiny bit of heritage unless you want people to believe that you are indigenous. So I don't think that it's correct to do it. I think it's inappropriate and I question why she even bothers. Why bother saying that if you don't want people to act on it or believe it or you're not using it in order to get something. So I'm skeptical of anybody and I'm not just picking on her because she's by no means alone. I think the report and everything that I said equally applies to people who are doing that. She's one of the embellishers then, right? That's what she's doing. So she's trying to use language to distinguish herself, and by doing that is still claiming an Indigenous background. So I'm, I'm not at all supportive of that distinction or that we should pay any attention to it. So you do believe then that she has committed fraud or is a fraud? Well, I don't know the circumstances of her hiring at Memorial, for example, right? So were they specifically looking for um, an Indigenous person? Whether they admit it or not, you know, presidential searches are usually quiet. In other words, they're targeted hires. So they probably don't have an advertisement out there that they had. They may have, 
put something out in public? Yeah, in, in her case, actually, they did have an ad out in 2019. It was actually created in collaboration with a private search firm. Mm-hmm. They weren't specifically looking for an Indigenous president. However, the process from that point on then was handled by the search firm that made recommendations to the university, the Board of Regents at the university, and then the Board of Regents selected Vianne Timmons. We don't know anybody else who was being considered, and we don't know whether there were any discussions about Vianne Timmons' indigeneity or her claimed Indigenous heritage or anything during the hiring process. We just know that even after she was hired, on campus and publicly, she has made references to her Mi'kmaq ancestry. But we don't know what factor that played in her hiring. Right, but they're undertaking an investigation themselves right now, right? And so they will have access to the minutes of the meeting where the discussion about hiring her came forward. And if anybody in that meeting said, oh look at that, we get an Indigenous president and that will really go gangbusters for our uh, diversity and equity and inclusion factors and we want to encourage Indigenization in the university. If anybody said anything even remotely like that and then they hired her, then that is hiring her using her Indigenous credentials as a boost up from the other candidates. So unless you can see their minutes, but they'll have them, and you can bet they're looking at them because that will tell them. Now, we saw with UBC, I think they blatantly misrepresented the statement they said when people were talking about Dr. Mary Ellen Terpel-Lafond, and they said, well, being Indigenous wasn't a part of the hiring qualifications. Well, the truth is there were no hiring qualifications because she was a targeted hire. So that's deliberate misrepresentation on the part of UBC. So I'm not saying Memorial's doing that, but the facts of the situation are going to be known to them and we won't know that, right? Now that's not to say Vianne's got her own serious credentials in her background, right? Working in university administration. So none of this is to say anything about whether she's good at what she does or whether she's got this background. I think she was at University of Regina before. And I think there she still had on her resume that she was part of this other First Nation. So whether there's some sleight of hand here where she can sort of drop all that stuff and say, no, 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 it didn't have anything to do with anything. But then if so, why was she carrying it along with her all the way? Before we go on, Jean Taye is co-chair of Inspire's board of directors. And it's at this point in the conversation that I wanted to ask her about the organization's recognition of Timmins in 2019. But before the interview started, Taye told me the organization has decided that one person will speak to the issue. And she gave me the names of two individuals to reach out to. Inspire CEO Mike Degagne and co-chair Donald Worm. Last week, neither responded to Barry Ground's request for comment on the matter. And as of April 8, Inspire continues to identify Timmins as Mi'kmaq from Nova Scotia. In her report, Taye explains how Indigenous identity fraudsters groom elders. Let me just read a bit of that part. One of the more troubling patterns revealed in Indigenous identity fraudsters' behavior is their use of Indigenous elders. One Métis trauma counsellor noted that Some fraudsters are predators 
and that they groom elders to accept them. Maria Campbell, a well-known Métis elder and author, noted that elders are carefully chosen and can be knowledge keepers that have standing in the community. Often these elders are poor, and the fraudsters pay them, take them to conferences, and ensure they receive attention. The report also says, Fraudsters spend a great deal of time cultivating a relationship with respected elders. The names of elders are dropped into casual conversation. They assume that these elders prove their authenticity and belonging. But this is elder abuse, and many elders do feel abused by this behavior. They're grateful and relieved when the fraudster is finally exposed. It's one thing to quote an elder as a reference. It's quite different to drop repeated references to elders in public statements, especially to illustrate a close relationship. This is another red flag of Indigenous identity fraud. You might recall that Timmins cited elders when justifying her decision to continue claiming Mi'kmaq ancestry and her decision to accept the Inspire Award. All right, back to the interview. Jean, we don't know who the elder or elders she's referring to are, and therefore we don't know whether your concept of elder grooming applies, but the fact that she relies on one or more elders to justify claiming Mi'kmaq ancestry, does that concern you? I have drawn attention to the fact that there are patterns in these people, and the fact that they refer to elders is a way of authenticating themselves. It's a way of making them look like they really are Indigenous, because a non-Indigenous person would never go ask advice from an Indigenous elder. They wouldn't even mention the name. So the very fact that she's mentioning the name, she's drawing attention again to her Indigeneity. And I think, A, it is abusing elders to ask them to do that. And B, it's a little bit like um, a magician's trick. They're using all of the trappings of Indigenous people's legitimate things in Indigenous culture to sort of cloak themselves in some kind of air of authenticity. I mean, the way she's uh, walking both sides of the fence here, oh, I'm not claiming I'm Indigenous, but I have Indigenous heritage. Oh, I'm not claiming I'm Indigenous, but I seek advice from elders, and I make sure you know it, right? I make sure everybody knows it. Well, the truth is most Indigenous people who go to elders, this is not dinner table talk. It's not the kind of stuff you brag about in the press, right? It's only non-Indigenous people who do this. And we saw this with people like Kerry Barassa and other people who do it. I think it's most unfortunate and it's, it's terrible to um, refer to elders only for the purpose of making yourself look better. In your report, you note that when an Indigenous identity fraudster is outed in a university, professors from other universities shy away from recommending that school to their students. They're wary of universities that had the kind of processes that permitted the fraudster admission and of how the university handled the exposure of the fraudster. They are skeptical that these universities can nurture and protect Indigenous students. And you also say that Indigenous students themselves make choices to avoid campuses where Indigenous identity fraud has been exposed. Some students are so disturbed by these events that they transfer to another university. Jean, in this respect, does it matter that Timmins is a president and not a professor? In some ways, it's worse. She's not going to be supervising somebody's PhD. She's not teaching classes, right? So that's good. 
But in other ways, it's worse because she's like the front person for the whole university. And if what she's standing on is um, fraud or misrepresentation at best about who she is, with intention that you all understand that she is Indigenous, no matter what terminology she uses, that calls into question the integrity of the university. And everybody across Canada will see that. Everybody, especially Indigenous professors, as we saw at the University of Saskatchewan. I talked to professors from other universities in Ontario when I was um, preparing the report, and I asked them if they would send students, and they just went, not a chance. Not a chance. So I could go back to those same professors and say, would you send anyone to Memorial when the president of the university is one of these people? Pretty sure they'd say not a chance. Um, you know, I mean, it sets the tone. Universities must, they must stand on truth and integrity, or else why would we believe any of the research that comes out of them? Why do we revere them as people who have hold to the knowledge of our society? And if the head of that is, I don't know, playing, I don't even, I'm t searching for the right word for what she's doing because she's playing both sides of the fence here. And I'm, I'm disturbed by it, and I think we should all be disturbed by it. So I think it's equally damaging um, to the reputation of the university, for sure. Your report ends with a series of recommendations specifically for the University of Saskatchewan, but those policies could be very useful to other universities as well. What are some of the key takeaways from your research that you would impart on those who may be listening from universities that have not yet fully addressed the issue of Indigenous identity fraud? Well, I'd say, first of all, it's my take on it, and I was just at a forum in Regina that was put together by First Nations University, um, that was all about this issue. And there were people there, faculty, staff, administrators from a lot of universities across the country. So it's my impression that most universities are in one way or another uh, grappling with this issue. When I did the policy recommendations, in the end of my report. There are a lot of them that I think could be adapted to any university and for any situation. But one of the big ones was make everybody who comes into your university, and this would be for a president or somebody who's on your board of governors or somebody who's uh, faculty, staff, students, sign a declaration that they declare that what they're saying is true and that it gives the university the permission to verify it and also acknowledges that if they're found to be dishonest or misrepresenting in any of these statements, there will be consequences which could be as serious as firing. So they know up front about this. The other thing about the universities is they have to put out, I, I think of them as like big neon signs everywhere, saying, we are going to check. <laughs> We're going to check. And so um, that alone is going to stop a lot of this. This particular case with Vianne Timmins is raising some nuances that weren't in some of the other cases, but it's still the same story. It's just got um, a little bit of different paint on it.
Vian Timmons wasn't hired the same way that faculty members would be. Memorial University engaged in a secretive process that didn't include the wider academic community. If it had, it's possible Timmons would have been questioned about her dubious claims before she was offered the job. One of your recommendations, Jean, was to create lists of legitimate Indigenous organizations. If people cannot meet the identity requirements of these organizations, then they have not met the bar. That's what you wrote in your report. I can't help but think if Mun had done this, or if a Mi'kmaq person was involved in the process to select a new president, someone might have noticed the huge red flag that is the Bredor Mi'kmaq First Nation on Timmins' resume. This is true. Dr. Daryl LaRue has a whole website on race shifting, where he lists all of these highly questionable organizations. And Bredor is one of them on the site, right? So, yeah, those are flags, right? The, a lot of them are Eastern Canadian organizations in Ontario, Quebec, and the Maritimes. They're groups that have just sprung up since, you know, in the, since the 2000s, in this century. Many of these organizations, you don't have to have any Indigenous ancestry at all. And some of them are repurposing old French ancestors and turning them into... Indigenous people, and some of them are relying on an Indigenous ancestor 400 years ago, and some of them are relying on one a little more recent, right? But even if you're talking about four generations, you're still talking pretty much 100 years. Well, you know, that's a long time to not know about your ancestry until you went and did your genealogy, right? You know, it's it's passes beyond any kind of sniff test, about that. So I think the universities can do a lot to stop people from coming in by creating policies. But the harder problem is the people who are already embedded in the university, right? We've seen in the past, it's very difficult. Indigenous people often know that these people are fakes, right? And they've known in the community for a long time. And many times they've tried to raise it, but no one pays any attention to them. They don't have a microphone that anybody will listen to, and they don't have an ability to change, for example, university administration minds, right? They just blow it off. So it's unfortunate, but it's taken the press to take these issues and expose them in the public for them to be taken seriously. So in that sense, I think it's good that the press is doing this, but it makes it really difficult to find ways to deal with the embedded people. The big take-home point is we can stop this. We can do something about it. We just have to stop pretending that Indigenous identity is somehow some kind of sacred cow that you can't question, that you can't check out. Because we've shown now that mostly it's white people are willing to lie. <laughs> They're willing to, at, over decades, in order to do this. Now, the unfortunate part is that it's Indigenous people who have to shore up our defenses in order to stop white people from masquerading as Indigenous. It's the white people who are the perpetrators, but we're the ones who have to somehow shore up all of our identification systems in order to protect ourselves from fraudsters. And it doesn't seem fair. And a lot of Indigenous people are really think it's unfair. And I think it's unfair too. But if we don't do it, nobody will.
For years, faculty at Memorial University have been fighting the secretive hiring process that brought Vianne Timmons to Munn in the first place. When we come back, we go back to December 2019, when members of the Senate got an email. We'll find out what that email said and what happened over the ensuing 48 hours. Stay where you're too. Memorial is Newfoundland and Labrador's only university. It operates according to the Memorial University Act, provincial legislation that lays out everything from how the university is governed to how its president is chosen. Mun operates under a bicameral system, meaning there are two governing bodies with specific responsibilities. Its Board of Regents oversees management, administration, property, revenue, and the business affairs of the university. The majority of its 30 members are appointed by government. And the Senate deals with academic matters. More than half of its 91 members are faculty. When it comes to choosing a president, even though this is a decision that impacts everyone at MUN, the Memorial University Act gives the Board of Regents primary authority. That said, the Act legally binds the Board to consulting with the Senate. So, with dozens of people involved in Vianne Timmons' hiring process, why was she hired in spite of the fact that her claims of indigeneity were suspect? According to Memorial's Presidential Search Appointment and Assessment Policy, the appointment of a president is one of the board's most significant responsibilities. The policy gives the board the power to strike a presidential search committee, led by the Board of Regents' chair whose role is to recommend to the board one individual to serve as president and vice-chancellor. That committee is supposed to develop a collaborative search process that includes the option of hiring a search consultant, determining the degree of confidentiality for the process, and determining the level of involvement of the university community. Following its search, the committee then makes a recommendation to the board for appointment and the board's decision is taken in consultation with the Senate. In February 2019, the board struck its presidential search committee, which in turn hired Audgers Bernston, a private multinational executive search firm. You'll hear some refer to these folks as headhunters. Whatever happened during this time between the board and the search committee, we don't know. We don't know who was interviewed, how they were vetted, or whether, in Vianne Timmons' case, anyone asked her about her claims of indigeneity. If the board missed all the red flags, maybe questions were raised during the board's consultation with Senate, right? On December 10, 2019, senators received an email announcing a special meeting of Senate the following morning. This meeting will be strictly confidential, the email says and senators should not discuss the reason for this meeting until the university makes an official announcement. There was a single item on the meeting's agenda, a report from the Presidential Search Committee. 
That's all Senate members knew going into the meeting on short notice. The following morning, December 11th, Senators were told the board had chosen Vianne Timmons as the next president of Memorial University. People were upset that they were being asked to do something very consequential with not a lot of time. We had to do it in that meeting. That's Robin Whitaker, a senator at the time. Full disclosure, Robin is also the board chair for The Independent. She's a former professor of mine and a personal friend. She is big on changing how Memorial University is governed, and says the way Vianne Timmons was hired is a perfect case in point for reform. We arrived not knowing uh, who the candidate was. Um, The chair of the search committee, Iris Petten, who was the chair of the Board of Regents at the time, uh, presented um, Vianne Timmons' CV to us. And I can't remember, (laughs) I will say I can't remember whether there was any indication of, um, of her connection to um, Brador or or any indication of, of Indigenous heritage on the CV. Um, her CV was presented on, a, on an overhead screen and we were able to ask questions of um, Iris Petten. I think that there was a lot of frustration in the room among elected senators who are members of um, the academic staff that some of our questions were uh, weren't being answered, or perhaps Iris Petten couldn't answer them. Uh, people felt they were being asked to make an enormously consequential decision on very short notice. He learned in the meeting who the one, the single finalist candidate was, and we were presented with the information that we got in that meeting. No chance to discuss it, no chance to, you know, beyond the, the debate in the meeting, no chance to... Uh, do any kind of independent uh, research that we might want to do to to gain additional information, not much time to think over what the possible implications were. Um, So it was then and there. And then, um, you know, very shortly afterwards, we got an invitation to a special event at which uh, Vianne Timmons was was to be present, um, which indicated, at least strongly suggested that she was already in town. So, you know, this was being viewed basically as a fait accompli. You heard that right. The Senate was given one name, Vianne Timmons. The Board of Regents chair couldn't answer all of the senators' questions to their satisfaction. And then, senators were asked to support the board's decision. Remember, the board is mostly made up of government appointees. According to the minutes from that day, the meeting began at 9.30 a.m. and ended at 10.45. But that's not all. Senators were then invited to meet Timmons the very next day, which Whitaker says strongly suggests Timmons was already in St. John's. Barry Grounds asked Munn to confirm whether Vianne Timmons was already in St. John's when the Presidential Search Committee quote-unquote consulted with the Senate on December 11, 2019. Spokesperson David Sorensen first told Barry Grounds that, as for the president's whereabouts on December 11th, I have no record of that. After being pressed, he then said, the board office has no record of arranging a flight for Dr. Timmons to St. John's for December 11th. The wording felt suspect. I didn't ask if she had flown on December 11th specifically, 
And also, it's almost impossible to imagine that the university would have no record of flying its incoming president to St. John's for the announcement. So I pressed some more. After a few days of back and forth, I finally get an email from Sorensen, saying, It turns out, upon further digging, that the consultant did arrange to fly the president select to St. John's on December 10th. The bill was paid by the board office. We now have confirmation. Vianne Timmins was in St. John's before she was officially president. That's how Memorial's Board of Regents consults with Munn's Senate, and that's how Vianne Timmins became president of Memorial University. Like me, though, you might be wondering why senators who took issue with the process didn't try to do something about it sooner. Well, they did. Months earlier, in spring 2019, Ken Snellgrove, a senator and president of Munn's Faculty Association, presented a motion requesting that the Board of Regents regularly update the Senate regarding the progress of, and plans for, search activities. Robin Whitaker also put forth a motion that Senate recommend the Presidential Search Committee adopt open search procedures where identities of shortlisted candidates are presented to the university community for consideration and consultation. Snellgrove's motion was tabled, and Senate lost quorum before they could vote on Whitaker's motion. No Senate meetings were held over the summer when Audrey's Bernston began interviewing candidates, and the October Senate meeting was cancelled. Robin is no longer a Munn senator, but she is the vice president of the Canadian Association of University Teachers and has a broad view of issues around presidential searches at Canadian universities. All of these things raise questions about uh, the kinds of the ways that we approach uh, university governance. You know, openness and transparency, accountability. You know, in the terms of, in the sense of documentation, um, the the meaningful involvement of the academic staff in decision making, um, and and those who support this kind of a process will say, oh, but there are, you know, academic staff members on the search committee. And and that's true, but those academic staff members are forbidden from consulting their colleagues. They can't talk about the search while the search is ongoing. So again, this to me raises questions about how robustly collegial the process is. Those who followed the recent Memorial University faculty strike might recall that the Faculty Association wanted a clear definition of collegial governance that would open doors for more democratic processes in hiring senior administrators. Ash Hossein is president of Memorial's Faculty Association. He says the number of vacancies on Memorial's Board of Regents and the rate of turnover among senior administrators are due in part to the fact that faculty don't have more say in who the university hires in management. If you look at the month's website, oh my God, all the senior positions are interims. I'm involved in pension reform process and last three meetings we have three different VP finance. Three meetings in last six months, three different VP finance. And the, the meeting I had last week, that VP finance is gone again. So the meeting I will have in next month, uh, which is coming uh, next week. Uh, so we will have a different VP finance. You heard that right. Hossein has now met with Mun's fourth vice president of finance, 
in just over six months to discuss pension reform. Memorial's Vice President Research, Neil Bose, was moved to the VP Academic and Provost role when Dr. Margaret Steele, who was already serving an interim role there, returned to her job as Dean of Medicine. Steele was asked to fill the void when Florentine Streslick left after just six months as provost. The same firm that hired Vianne Timmins hired her, and according to records released through Access to Information legislation, Memorial paid Audrey's Bernston almost $61,000 to find Streslick. And to find Timmins? $150,000. Jerry Woodford is co-head of academic practice at Audrey's Bernston. She worked on the search for Timmins. Barry Grounds asked her by email if Timmins' claim of Mi'kmaq heritage played a role in the firm's recommendation of her, and also if Audrey's Bernston has a policy of verifying job candidates' claims of indigeneity. We didn't receive a response. Bose has now been named president for two years or until Memorial finds a new president. With Memorial in crisis, Hossein says it's finally time to implement a robust form of collegial governance. Like I said to one of my colleagues yesterday, if you were any other organization, uh, it will be the shutdown or like go bankrupt. The disarray in the top right now is a prime example of why we need collegial governance in this university. So, and open and transparent processes. We, are, we have been saying that for transparency, transparency, transparency. We need that to fix this university, like from the top, top down, it, it, it's like a mess. This is as low as Memorial can go, I think. The right now the situation is so the only way is moving up so this is the right time to steer the ship in the right way with transparency and proper collegial governance that's it for this episode of Barry grounds the show is produced edited and hosted by me justin brake if you like what we're doing and want to help keep the show going click the pink support us button at the independent.ca if you're listening on apple spotify or amazon you can also leave a review and help us reach more people. If you like, you can share feedback with me by email at justin.break at theindependent.ca. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.